<clears throat> Hello and welcome to episode 11 of the UATX Forbidden, uh, Forbidden Conversations. My guest today comes all the way from Austin, Texas via um, Austria. We haven't, uh, we'll figure out what part of Austria it is. Um, and of course, via a few other places as well, including Stanford, Cairo, and a few other places in between. So you probably have already guessed, please welcome to the show, Stefan Spezia. Thank you for having me, Harry. Brilliant. What parts of that did I get wrong? I, I know that I, you came from, you were born in Austria, but maybe give us a little bit of details as to where. Yeah, so actually you got most parts right. I was I was technically born in the UK. I was born in London, um, okay. but we moved away when I was quite young, when I was like two or three years old, uh, two years old, I should say. Then we moved to, to Karlsruhe, to Germany. Um, my parents are both Austrian though, so I, I guess I was sort of fully brought up and cultured in the Austrian uh, tradition, if you will. And eventually um, we moved to Kufstein, Tirol, Austria. So that's in the west of Austria. Um, a lot of people know it from, from skiing, perhaps. Yeah. Uh, very, very mountainous, alpine environment and very beautiful, I think. It looks similar to how you, if you know the sound of music, that's kind of yep. what it looks like, I think. And my father ended up buying a ski company, um, in, which is located in Kufstein. It's called Kneisel. It's it was the oldest, or it is still the oldest ski company in existence. It was founded in 1907, but that's how we sort of ended up there. It's halfway between Munich and Innsbruck, uh, the respective state capitals of Bavaria in Germany and, and Tyrol in, in Austria. Yeah. Okay, that's, and I'm guessing you're a skiing enthusiast yourself. Oh yeah, hundred percent. I mean, it, it came with the territory almost that you had to you had to know how to ski very well. I was yeah. racing when I was younger, um, and obviously, if your father owns the, the, the local skiing company, you, you have to know what you're doing. Um, I did a bit of uh, skiing and snowboarding instructing um, as well when during during my studies. So, yeah, yeah huge enthusiast. F fantastic. I mean, now we've uh, just got our we just got our epic pass. Um, oh really? <laughs> oh man, we are so we are fizzing for it. Um, nice. Yeah. I, although I, think I, I didn't know. I didn't know that the Epic Pass actually included, I think, some international destinations, right? It's got a lot, but a lot of ones which you would think, which I feel are like the bonus, which you do. It's like getting like, oh, I've bought the NBA Pass and it allows me to go to two free games in like the Tunisian League. You know, it's like very much the bonus without a benefit. Um, but there's some in Switzerland, there's some in Japan, and there might be one in New Zealand as well, which could potentially like, might be like the third person to ever like take up that option. Um, but you've obviously skied a little, let's just go, cause I'm, I'm a keen skier. Um, what do you think is the big difference between the American ski culture or skiing in America versus skiing in Europe? That's a great question. And it's honestly something, it's a thing that I find sad to see that skiing in the U S I think has become a bit of an elitist sport or endeavor. Um, and in countries like Austria, Switzerland, certain parts of Italy and France, it is very much, how do you say, a common pastime. Like yeah. it, it's still customary, I think it is hopefully still customary, for, for your middle school to go on skiing trips for a whole week, for like yeah. a ski week. So it was, um, yeah, it, it was open to everyone. It was quite affordable. And in the US, unless you happen to live really very close to a skiing resort, it is um, socioeconomically stratified, unfortunately. Where, where certain yeah where, where certain skiing areas are pretty much off limits um to 
to 90% of the population. Aspen, for example, I went there with a friend, yeah. uh, sorry, Aspen Bale, and the day pass was like more than $200. Yeah. Um, the, the, the hotel was very expensive. Um, I was able to, to crash with a friend. The flights were expensive. So it's, it's a bit crazy that you could probably fly to Austria yeah. and ski there for a week for less than it would cost you three or four days skiing in one of the top locations in the US. And value for money, I would, I would probably say it's, it might be better in, in Austria, actually. No, I have seen, I saw something the other day where it was very much like, yeah, you can fly to, yeah, unless you fly to Switzerland, like every European option is usually cheaper than flying to, you know, Aspen Vale, um, Telluride. Um, And, you know, I mean, we're fortunate because we live in Denver, so it's like you can just drive there. And so a lot of your costs are discounted. But, you know, definitely, like when you start looking at, there is like no limit to how much money you can spend on this um you know something like six thousand sixteen thousand dollars a night rooms um you think if i'm spending 16 not that we're obviously spending sixteen thousand, but you think if you're spending like, the amount of places in the world which is charging sixteen thousand dollars a night which isn't you know a 40 bedroom place <laughs> overlooking the, you know like it seems pretty pretty wild um no, I found that it, um, it's interesting how different sports in different parts of the world have a differently a like a cash related item to it. Um, kind of a bit like owning a horse in something <clears throat> Europe yeah. is super like only very wealthy people own horses. Whereas like if you're in Montana, heaps of people own horses. You know, um, I guess it's just such a function of of space. Um, but yeah, no. This will be our first time skiing in North America, so we're super stoked. Well, I think I'm sure you're going to enjoy it. I mean, the, the skiing is is fantastic, admittedly, but it's it's a shame that a lot of people might not get a chance to to experience it. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And like I said, uh, since my father actually invented the parabolic ski, the carving ski, which revolutionized what? skiing. Yeah. Um, yeah. In 1992, the, the Kneisel Ergo was the first um, was the first parabolic ski that was at least a wide release. Yeah. Um, so it, to me, I don't know, it, it's still, even though he, he sold the company in 2000, it, it was an integral part of my up, upbringing and um, yeah, something I still feel feel very uh, strongly for. For, for, our, for our listeners who aren't familiar with the carved ski, can you sort of give it a brief summary of what yeah. that is and why it's so important? So, So the, the parabolic ski, um, by the way, you were breaking up a bit on my yeah. end. Let me know if you can hear me clearly. Oh, the, I got a bit of break up then. I'll, I'll repeat the question. I can edit it out. Um, the question was, tell us a little bit about the, for those who don't know, what the carving ski was and how much of an impact it's had globally. Yeah, so, so the carving ski was really a revolution in, in skiing design up until, um, I mean, there were several iterations going from wooden skis, then introducing metal edges, going to a sandwich um, composite construction um, process. But I think one of the biggest leaps was arguably introducing um, uh, a, a shorter turn radius, which you achieved by having sort of a curved parabolic uh, edge design versus pretty parallel um, skis. Yeah. And it it's funny when my, my father sort of came up with this idea it, it wasn't immediately clear, is this a good idea? It was somewhat um, lended from uh, snowboarding where people were carving already a little earlier. Yeah. Um, still a pretty large turn radius if you think about it now. Uh, but back then it was sort of the first foray 
I think, into that parabolic shape. Um, but once it was introduced into the racing world, you could immediately see, especially for Super G and uh, Giant Slalom, they would shave off like two and a half seconds of, of, of times. So it was, it was a massive, a massive revolution. And it made it much easier to turn on the edge. Before then, you had, you had to master essentially a drift carve or a drift turn where you were set, sort of balancing on the edge of your ski, which required a lot of skill, especially on, on icy terrain or uneven terrain. And you can still see that in, in like downhill Super G races of the, of the 80s, late 80s, how they sort of, they're gliding on the edge versus a carving ski that almost autonomously uh, turns on the edge. And the reason I'm mentioning this is you could tell that it made skiing a bit easier at high speeds. And I do think there was actually a slight collateral uh, damage in the sense that, that there were worse skiing accidents because people became overconfident and perhaps didn't really have the, the necessary skill to, to turn safely at, at high speeds. Interesting. That, that, that does make sense. You know, the more possible, the better for something can't, what is it? Um, the safer you make something, the more accidents can potentially happen from it. Um, kind of, the example I always think of is like American football, how the more yeah. protection you provide to people, the more dangerous it's the the impact. Yep. Yeah. Um, there's like, you know, significantly less injury in a sport like rugby where you just have like a mouth guard versus like the full kit. Um, because if you've only got about, you know, unless you're leading with your teeth, like you have to protect yourself <laughs> in a lot of different ways. Yeah. That's, I mean, what, a, what, what an interesting claim to fame. I mean, it, maybe give us a little bit more of a sort of a rundown on what it was like to grow up in a family of, you know, essentially entrepreneurs. Yeah. So, I might have to take a, a step back a bit because it also um, played a role in, in why I was born in the UK. Mm. Uh, my father originally was in, in a very corporate career. Yeah. Um, he he was um, he was Austria's national springboard diving champion. He was essentially a pro athlete. Yeah. Um, he qualified for the 1968 Olympics. Um, wasn't able to participate, unfortunately, due to a car accident. Eventually went to INSEAD, which is a sort of famous business school, which was modeled after Harvard uh, in 1968 or 1969. Um, and then joined L'Oreal, the French um, cosmetics uh, company, very quickly rose through the ranks and was then a country director, managing director um, for the Austrian subsidiary, then for the UK subsidiary, and then for the German one. And he was eventually on the shortlist of becoming a global CEO together with Lindsay Owen Jones, who eventually made, made the, the, the cut, I should say. And, and this was sort of a pivotal moment in his life where he thought, I want to do something else. I want to do something entrepreneurial. I want to own my own sports company, uh, owing to his own sort of athletic background. And then when Kneisel, that ski company, which has been around since 1907, um, went uh, bankrupt or, or through bankruptcy procedures, he ended up buying uh, the company uh, in 1989, and that's that's how we ended up in Austria. And he was, even though he was the CEO and and uh, I think the, the largest shareholder, was very much a product driven kind of CEO. He was deeply involved in the whole R and D and and design process. One of his biggest hits was the Bigfoot. I don't know if you ever came across this. It's a short ski that that looks a bit like an oversized footprint. Hmm. Um, and it was the best-selling winter sport equipment in the early 90s. It's what kept the comp company afloat. And it already introduced the first sort of parabolic design, which eventually then um, 
yeah, which eventually informed the the design of the Kneisel Ergo. Um, and I'm mentioning this because back then it wasn't obvious to me when I was like, I don't know, between six to 10 years old, what a tremendous leap of faith I think it was to leave a super safe, a very successful corporate career and, and go on this pretty uncertain endeavor and adventure. Um, especially he already had five kids at the, at the, at the time. So I only began to sort of appreciate in, 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 in the last couple of years that this was, um, I think, a, yeah, a difficult uh, choice to, to make. And yeah, I think it took a lot of courage um, for him. And eventually, today you would probably call it entrepreneurship through acquisition, that you basically yeah. buy a company and run it. Um, but I, I think I could tell that the dynamics shifted a little bit in our family, whereas you just became more, perhaps more cost conscious in everything you did. Yeah. If you see things from an entrepreneurial lens and from an entrepreneurial perspective, and it definitely introduced, I think, a certain or a degree of uncertainty um, into everything. Even though my parents tried very hard to to shield us from this, I think um, somehow we 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 still absorbed this. I can, especially considering that I'm in some ways running a ski resort is kind of like being a farmer in the sense that your output is unpredictable. It's entirely driven on, you know, some years it snows, some years it doesn't. Maybe you have like no snow in that week leading up, you know, that Christmas week, which I imagine is just like boom time. And if it's pumping down snow, you know, 300 miles away in France and it's, there's nothing there, it's a dry season, you know. Um, and then back and forth. So not, a, I mean, being an entrepreneur, I always imagine is you're dealing with a huge amount of uncertainty. Um, and, but there are ways that you can sort of endeavor to like find out about these things. This is baked in uncertainty. Um, yeah. And while you might say over the long run, it's fine. You only require like three bad seasons in a row and it can all come crumbling down. It's funny you mentioned that because first of all, I think it's a, it's a great analogy that I never thought about uh, in this way, but it's very much a seasonal business. Um, and and like agriculture, perhaps to a certain degree, um, sort of at the behest of, of, of weather conditions. And there are exactly in the mid nineties, um, I think from 1993 to 1995 or so, there were three pretty bad seasons back to back, which yeah. wiped out, I think, half of the yeah. half of the skin companies that were still manufacturing in Europe. Yeah. And the only reason the Kneisel survived was because of that uh, Bigfoot, the, the the short sort of fun ski. Um, that yeah was the best selling uh, winter sport equipment at the time. Yeah, um, you grew up in quite an interest, like a, quite a unique experience over two dimensions. One is you grew up with a very high performing father across a number of dimensions. Um, you know, global CEO, like potential Olympian. You know, um, and you know to grow up in a family which is sort of has. I mean, it's not a celebrity in the same way like Michael Jordan's your father, but like someone who has had set extremely high goals and achieved them. Um, but there's also a one of five children, which is, you know, I used to say like I was one of three children. And when I was a kid, that was considered like a bigger family, but completely normal. Now, if you say you have three kids, people assume that you're part of like some like religious cult, you know, and not even like, oh, are you Catholic? It's like, dude, you must be one of those like niche ones that are like, found like rural Utah. Um, so yeah, maybe you could like expand about those two things. Like what it's like 
being one of five, maybe you can start with where you, where you stack up in the position um, and what some of the benefits were and maybe some of the disadvantages of sharing love five ways. Yeah, I th- it's a that's a very astute observation you, you made there because I think those were two of the most sort of formative um, aspects of my of my upbringing. First, having a very sort of high achieving um, father figure, mm. um, but also as you said, having four siblings. So I'm I'm the youngest of four brothers, and then we have one younger sister. But I have a twin brother, an identical twin, who's like ten minutes older. Um, what I would definitely say is was very beneficial is you were constantly exposed to a, to a very high degree of social stimulation, intellectual stimulation, especially because all, all of my brothers, my older brothers are very athletic, very competitive, very intelligent. So, um, and since they are uh, five and seven years older, there was a lot that you could learn from them. Um, and just sort of as a secondary effect you were also exposed to their friends um to their different hobbies so i i felt it was incredibly enriching and and i think intellectually athletically very very stimulating for me um having said that on, on the flip side i do think it's also a bit of a constant competitive pressure going on there is perhaps a degree of resource conflict always going on if if you I don't know. There's, there was there was never enough of of, of my favorite cereal at yeah. breakfast. Table, you know, if you're the last one to arrive, well, tough luck. And of course, it's how do you say it's like lamenting in luxury. But as a kid, you feel like um, occasionally, perhaps uh, a little shortchanged. Um, and I think we just grew up with the sense that you, you, everyone had to contribute; otherwise, it doesn't work. Like if you go if you go on vacation with um, yeah, with five kids and and a huge dog, and you would drive. Occasionally, we would drive like a thousand miles to to the to the French coast, where a friend of ours had a, had a beautiful vacation home. Um, this only works if everyone tries to contribute more than he sort of takes. Sort of being more accretive than than dilutive in in, in your efforts and consumption. And I think that's something that yeah, that also made uh, an impression uh, on my on my psychology and in my life perhaps. But the other thing is, since I have an identical twin brother, I, I, I do think it was challenging occasionally to, to fully develop your own um, discrete sort of identity because you were often sort of seen as, oh, as one of two. Yeah, um, the twins. You look, you look the same. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't change it. If I ever have kids, I, I, would, I think it would be great if there's at least like three or four. There's a good saying by Winston Churchill, actually, that you should have four kids, one to recreate um, your partner, one to recreate yourself, one for the growth uh, in, in population, and one as a spare. So Interesting. Because um, it used to be, what was it? My mom used to always talk about three. And I guess maybe it's because you just one of three. And it was like, one, one's the heir, one for the cloth and one for the country. Um, and so you'd, 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 you'd allocate one off to the, uh, you know, one would keep the farm, the other one would keep, would go off to the, the clergy and the other one would go off to the army. Um, no, it's, I mean, I'm always fascinated. I think everyone, you know, there are some things, everyone's got different interests, but I think one thing that always fascinates people is identical twins. 
Um, and, you know, wherever, you, like, it seems cross-cultural when if you hear these stories of, like, the identical twins separated at birth and then they end up, you know, at the same university course, studying the same subject together, you know, what's that like? You know, do you have that relationship with your brother or do you sometimes see him as, is there things that, like, because I've met some identical twins who, you know, they, they use the word we rather than I to describe things. Like, we do swimming and we do, like, physio and like if they're away from each other for more than 20 minutes you can just tell they start you know twitching a little bit yeah tell me tell what it's like to sort of share share that experience um so yeah i mean i don't know the counterfactual example what it would have been without a twin so i can only speak to the target was sort of for me in that situation um i do think we had very intense competition uh between the two of us, probably yeah. across all of our brothers in general, but even more so between yeah. the two of us, because we were also sort of enrolled in the same um, extracurricular activities. We po- we both played um, baseball, um, also for the for the Austrian national team uh, when we were younger. Um, we played sort of tennis and then ping pong. We're skiing, racing together. So there was sort of this constant um, competition going on which I think was probably a net benefit because it it, it sort of, um, yeah, it motivated us to, 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 to give our best. But uh, I do think at times it was also perhaps a little too much energy going on, especially for my, my father or parents, um, perhaps. Um, I do think that we have a bit of a, uh, almost like a telepathic uh, connection where we, are about to say the same thing or we know exactly what the other one is thinking um so that's definitely i think an unusually strong bond um yeah where do you think the right level of competition is for children because like i see some of my friends who have young children and it feels like once their kids turn three they're like your childhood's over it's now time <laughs> to prepare for your harvard admissions and every year it's like you know, the days of JFK just putting his name down and being like, you know, I wouldn't mind a few days down at a few years down at Cambridge just to hang out and see what happens. Like those days are over. Um, and it feels, you know, that as some, you know, you've gone to Stanford, you'd have seen some kids, maybe less so at the graduate level, who have, you know, spent their entire life to get there. And sometimes it works. And sometimes even high, high levels of success don't necessarily lead into like high levels of personal fulfillment. So yeah, what do you, where do you think the level of competition lies? Yeah, just, just a quick comment on JFK. Um, I fully agree. It's kind of cool how you know, he was able to simply, how do you say, study uh, at Harvard, and he eventually published his thesis. I think it was called "While England Slept." So uh, he definitely had great academic facility, but he was also at the at, at Stanford briefly for only um, only six months or so before he he was shipped to the. Um, Pacific Theatre before he enrolled in the in the army. The funny thing is, there's hardly anything there's hardly anything left from his time at Stanford, with with the exception of like two or three notes that he sent to his mother, and he said, "I really like Stanford. Um, the weather's great, and the girls are very pretty." Yep. So that's what that's what how do you say left the most uh, mark for him. Um, but what you mentioned is, I think, very much um, a cultural divide between the U.S. And their approach to the ed- educational um, maybe system and the educational formation of their their children and maybe more of a European um, or perhaps Central European approach where I think there is 
there's less pressure imposed on kids simply because a lot of universities are public and you can enroll in more or less whatever subject or degree you want, with the exception of a few like medicine where you need a certain GPA average or a specific exam. And in the US specifically, it does seem like, like you said, children from a very early age on, I think are uh, inoculated with, with this belief that you have to, everything depends on them on those formative years in your childhood, whether you will be a success or a failure. And I, I do think there is something to be said for, for both of these approaches. Um, but I think a lack of, it's, it's, I mean, academically, it has been, scientifically, it has been shown that, that, that a lack of unsupervised play is not healthy for children. And I think that is probably lacking. If, if your whole day is mapped out and you have, uh, I don't know, a, a nanny who speaks a foreign language, to, to help you boost your credentials hmm. um, in, in, in foreign languages or so. And you, you go to all kinds of extracurricular activities, everything planned out. I do think there has to be an element of, of, of play, of normal play in, in children's lives. And I, I, I do think it might be unhealthy if you, if you veer too far to one extreme. Um, having said that, I do also agree that on the in in the European system, perhaps there isn't sufficient um, there isn't sufficient st motivation and, and stimulation to sort of perform at your best or to really um, identify talents and and nourish and how do you say uh, help help exceptionally talented people to reach their peak, and that's also why a lot of those um, positive outliers eventually end up studying perhaps in the US. Um, so I think the ideal approach would probably be somewhere in the middle where where, a chil where children are in a constant sort of stretch goal um, mindset, but without being suffocated by it. Because li like you said, not everyone obviously statistically can be part of the 99th percentile. Yeah. And if there are psychological damages for those who don't make the cut, uh, I'm not sure how how good that is on the aggregate level. When you think about, you know, getting the best out of people talent-wise in Europe, do you think that's like a universal, like, aspect? Or do you think, because I think there's so many things that, um, you know, talented Europeans succeeding, you know, in, you know they still dominate um, in many sports. Um, they still dominate in the cultural sense. Um, there's still plenty of, like, great ideas and, well, sorry, plenty of terrible ideas coming out of like <laughs> European universities and cities and whatnot. Um, I would say that there's certainly a slower pace of innovation and entrepreneurship in Europe. Um, so yeah, maybe a little bit more about why you think, you know, why talent is extracted more in the US than it is in Europe, whether it's just singular or it's more. Yeah, I think it's it's partially um, by design or by, by default, where I, I think in, in Europe, for example, um, educational excellence is, is clustered closer around a mean or, or a median where with less with a lower degree of variation. In the US, unfortunately, I do think that the public education um, perhaps is, is, is perhaps of, of lower quality than other highly developed um, countries, but they have these statistical outliers of people out and overperforming. Um, and I, in the case of Europe, I think it's actually healthy that you have a very 
high baseline, at least in most Western European countries, you have a very high baseline of general public education. Um, I don't think there's enough being done um, to sort of, yeah, foster real real outliers, perhaps. Um, but it is be- better for the for a cohesive society, for a, for a functioning uh, dem- democracy, if you have a high um, educational baseline. And I think the, the U.S. is often concerned that this might be a communist idea um, and maybe overcorrecting on the individualistic approach. Uh, but I don't think those are necessarily mutually exclusive. I, I do think you have you can have very, very strong, um, maybe state mandated and sponsored public education in administered in public schools while still having a rich talent pool of, um, of, of very smart and talented um, people. The other thing where Europe, or at least definitely Austria, suffers a bit is it's a very small country and market. So it is difficult. You, you almost have to go beyond your national confinement if you want to um, if you want to scale your startup significantly, or if you if you're even dreaming about unicorn status. And there have been some Austrian unicorns, but they they always found success abroad, usually in Germany, some of them in the U.S. So the the lack of a of a cohesive large market, even though the single single European market is, exists in theory, it doesn't really exist in practice. And if I think if that would exist, it would greatly benefit um, entrepreneurship and innovation in in Europe and the European Union. I, I think a lot of Americans fail to rec- oh, don't not fail to recognize, don't appreciate just how enormous the American market is. And when people talk about entering, it's not a market, it is the market. And the example I always use is there are two professional bass fishing leagues in this country. <laughs> and like that just sums it all up. That, 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 you know, that's my NBA speech done. You know, like how on earth can you run two, not two teams, not like two comms, two leagues. You know that, but I'm, I'm going to steal that example because it, it really exemplifies. It really exemplifies all of it, you know. <laughs> um, and you only, you know, so I, I always think that's, um, I, th- I think that's a very prescient thing. And, and what you've talked about is the American focus on the outlier and the mean. I see it all the time where, where you'd be like, well, you could make the argument American education is really good. Look at Harvard and Stanford. American healthcare is excellent. Look at like the Mayo Clinic. You know, it's just like using a small end of the right-hand distribution of the curve and extrapolating it, um, which seems like a pretty unsophisticated way of doing things. Um, it sounds like you had... Well, I loved hearing about your child, but I'd like to sort of talk about um, your time in the army because <laughs> uh, we have had we have had a few people in UATX who have um, served, but maybe talk about your experience. Yeah, so... Um, Austria is, I think, only one of two remaining countries in the European Union that still have a conscription service. So it's basically a mandatory military service for every male that is older than uh, than 18 um, and is, is fit to serve and doesn't choose to do a social service um, alternative um, due to, how do you say, reasons of, uh, of, of conscience. Um, I actually, most people do it when they're like 18. Um, I was, after I, I graduated a year I was a year younger than, than most of my peers when I graduated from high school. So at age 17, from age 17 to 18, I spent a year in Mexico as an exchange student. And when I came back, I guess I didn't properly notify the authorities. So I was already enrolled in university. And then they asked, hey, what about your military service? And then at least I was able to conclude my studies and then do the military service afterwards, which perhaps in hindsight wasn't perfect because then you're serving with a bunch of like 18, 19-year-old years old mostly 
but I, I opted to to do the EMT um, paramedic um, uh, sort of education because I thought that would have the most useful transferable skill um, beyond beyond your sort of military experience. It's only six months anymore. It used to be eight um, or a generation ago, maybe a year. So it's it's oh, thankfully less less of a time commitment. Um, but the the education on the EMT side was really excellent. Those were those were all um, officers who were civilian medical um, professionals, and most of them actually very acclaimed university professors. Um, and my oldest brother, who's actually a surgeon, he had the same anatomy professor that I had in the military because he was doing this sort of as a as as a as a public service. So the the level of education was was really good. Um, you can actually immediately after after you you exit from the, the the military EMT you can work in in a civilian capacity with the Red Cross so, so it's a very uh, standardized and, and sort of certified accreditation and I think it was overall um, a pretty good experience um, the only other thing that would have interested me in the military is perhaps doing the pilot pilot training but and uh, during my sort of aptitude assessment, the, the, the officer in charge was actually trying to convince me to, to, to join the, the pilot training program because my, my intellectual aptitude score and my, my physical fitness was, was very good and I didn't have eye issues. But you had to, you had to um, commit to a 10-year, sort of to a 10-year to a uh, lock-in lock period. And especially at that age, I felt like, well, that's an eternity. Um, so I, I, didn't, I didn't pursue that further. I think overall it was a, it wasn't an interesting experience. Because I had a look at because when I wanted to talk about this, so I had a look a little bit into a mandatory service, and it seems to me that there are sort of three groups. You have the countries which are surrounded by their enemies and have the existential threat, and that's your North Koreas, South Koreas, Taiwan, Israel. Israel's of the world. You know where they're like we we need everyone here. Like this is a this is a real thing. The the other group seems to be seems to be very popular in African countries. And my theory on that is that in some ways, this is almost like a holding, obviously there's a huge amount of conflict throughout that area. Um, so having boots on the ground always helps. But I imagine a secondary benefit, and this is just pure guessing, is warehousing young delusioned men for two years um, and getting them to do something productive um, rather than letting them roam around the streets of Bougainville or Kanasha um, and being lured by the sweet siren sounds of Al-Shabaab or, you know, Boko Haram. And then the third group is it feels like, you know, the Austrian, German, um, I guess maybe like, does Switzerland still do? Um, yep. And like, you know, a few of the Nordic countries as well. It feels less of a, we all need to learn how to protect our nation from, you know, our enemies um, and just let me know, like, how do you sort of see the benefits of running a, uh, a mandatory service when you're not surrounded by enemies? Um, and it's more of a, how would I describe this? It's not, it doesn't feel necessary in a pure military sense, but it obviously has some other benefits. And maybe you could discuss that. Yeah, yeah that's, that's true. I mean, we're not surrounded by enemies, but we have Germany to the north. No, I'm joking. That's, that's, that's a rivalry between... <laughs> Austria and Germany. Um, 
one of the biggest benefits is actually that a lot of people opt for the social service alternative. And that is a huge prop for a lot of um, social, social services that are available, like from um, Red Cross people who are volunteering with the Red Cross um, to uh, people tending to the elderly. It would actually be very difficult if you remove the conscription service and not even talking about military implications, there would be massive um, societal implications for Austria that, that a lot of um, broadly available social services might be might become unaffordable or you would not have enough people to man this because you have every year you have thousands of young, um, healthy, pretty capable men performing a wide range of um, social services. And I think it's it's both on the military and the, and the civilian and, or the civil service side, I do think it... It exposes you to 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 aspects of life that you're not familiar with, like riding with the Red Cross or tending after um, maybe handicapped or, or, or old people, um, sometimes yeah, demented people or, or pretty tough cases that I, I know some of my friends had to work with. It really, I think, it opens your sort of your psychological aperture, um, and it can be. A, I think it can help to create a cohesive. Um, sort of a cohesive social fabric. I do think at this point in time, it might be worth considering if, if women should do the same thing, um, at least in some sort of social service capacity um, and in the in the interest of, of equality. Would you say you were more patriotic after your time? <laughs> no, I don't think so. I, I mean, the, the Austrian military is... The, the, the EMT and paramedic training is, is really excellent. In, in some aspects... It feels, yeah, some, some aspects feel a little outdated. Um, yeah, I'm not sure it instills a, a tremendous sense of, of patriotism, but whenever you have, for example, uh, natural catastrophes or you need to mobilize a lot of people quickly, that's where the military can really shine. And that's where you can get, excuse my French, but you can really get shit done. And that's where I think there's a tremendous value in having this. Brilliant. Um, what's it like being a paramedic? I mean, I hear it seems like a job which is surprising in, in some ways it kind of reminds me of like people who decide to become like psychologists, like a lot more people decide to do it. Um, despite the fact that everyone knows going in that it's a really tough job on a number of factors. Um, yeah. Tell us about your experience as a paramedic. Yeah. I mean, it's um, luckily I didn't have too many severe uh, cases. Um, I was, I was stationed with the military hospital for, I think, Three months and for one month I was seconded to the to the Red Cross. Um, I mean, I had my, my fair share of, of interesting experiences. From from my perspective, I would say a lot of these experiences are pretty intense. Um, you have these, you know, you, you you have these days where nothing happens for like six seven hours, and all of a sudden you have like three emergencies: a five year old boy who needs to be reanimated. Um, or a pretty bad a car accident, and it's. I think it's a. It's an interesting experience how you then just have to shift into complete laser focus mode uh, from from I don't know, bombing around for six for six hours, and it 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 really also um, resharpens your your sense of personal responsibility and accountability because you really know that if you make a mistake, this could. This could have serious um, complications or 
negatively impact another person's life. Um, and I think it's yeah, it's a pretty humbling experience, to be honest. Thankfully, usually you have a um, a doctor on site who gives who gives most orders, but you're still an integral part of making sure that everything you know, everything goes smoothly. Yeah. Do you find because you know we'll get into a bit, but then you go to work for like the foreign service or the equivalent, <clears throat> equivalent thereof, which I imagine there's a huge amount of work which is highly abstracted, um, where there's and you know working like strategic direction, be like, oh, I wonder what 2030 is going to look like. Um, and, you know, contrast like the difference between very concrete work where you see your outcomes in real time and they are, you know, significant versus like a high level of abstraction. Yeah. Um, so I, I studied international business and economics um, after I came back from my from exchange year in Mexico. Then I completed the military service. In a sense, it gave me a bit of extra time to apply for different jobs. Mm-hmm. And I, I wasn't quite sure what I wanted, or I guess I couldn't quite name what I wanted. But when I came across this opportunity of joining the foreign service, primarily as a trade and economic diplomat, it, it really fell into place. And I thought like, wow, that's exactly what I want to do. I was always curious about um, large global um, issues, challenges, international relations, um, traveling the world, having ideally um, a socially, but also geographically interesting, versatile, adventurous lifestyle without severing my ties to Austria necessarily. And when this opportunity sort of fell into my lap, I thought like, wow, that's exactly what I want to do. Um, and it was a pretty competitive um, application procedure. I think um, Austria's largest uh, sort of admission, uh, admission testing program. But I was lucky that I ended up being one of, of 10 people who were admitted this year out of hundreds of applicants. And we underwent a, a one-year training in Vienna. And then once you complete this and you pass the final exam, they basically tell you on the spot where you're being sent. It's wow. like an, it's, it's a bit like an inauguration sort of rights where you have no idea where you're going to be in four weeks. And then you're, you're, you're standing there in a file uh, or in a line, 10 people, and they'll say, yeah, you go to Tehran, uh, you go to Tel Aviv, you go to Singapore, Bangkok. In my case, it was Cairo. Um, and that was a, yeah, a, a, a cool experience. And I actually had to, to come back to your question. I, I, I think I had the best of both worlds in a sense. There was a lot of abstract thinking, like economic strategy, where is this region going to and how can we um, find economic opportunities for Austria and Austria's exporters. And on the other hand, our one of our primary mandates was to help Austrian companies export and invest and being successful on the ground. So we were very close to the private sector where you had a, a much closer feedback loop. You would immediately see, um, is this opportunity worth pursuing? Is this goal going somewhere? You would organize trade missions, delegations. Um, so I think it was... Yeah, again, lucky in a sense to have having had a, a wide exposure. And in my in my first posting in Cairo, I was also covering a pretty large um, geographic area: hmm. uh, Egypt, Sudan, then South Sudan, which uh, succeeded while I was there; um, Ethiopia, Eritrea, Djibouti, Somalia. So very um, culturally, economically diverse, uh, diverse countries. Yeah, because I was. I don't know anything about the diplomatic service. Um, And I was wondering, like, when they allocate these roles, you know, is it a case of, is there like a hierarchy in that of places that you want to be sent? 
because my understanding is, you know, at least from like an Australian perspective, you know, the big the big gigs are, you know, Washington, London, Beijing, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then there, I imagine there's also, yeah, if I would split, there's like the important ones, which are like those countries. Then there's like the cruisy gigs where you get sent to, you know, on, get sent to Portugal or something. And your job, it seems to me, and you tell me if I'm wrong, your job mainly seems to be working out ways for visiting politicians to ride off their like family holiday. So they'll go and like kick the tires at a cement factory for like two hours and then, you know, cut a, cut a yeah. ribbon or something and then go home. And then you've got like the action zones, uh, <laughs> which it seems like you're in, especially when you talk about like Sudan, Eritrea, Somalia and stuff, where there's, um, even if I'm guessing there were Austrian boots on the ground, it was an era of high interest moving rapidly. Um, just talk to me. Like, is that do you do you like apply? Do you say like I want the action side? I want I want the uh, I want to be on the beach, yeah. or do I want to be? You know. So, especially in the beginning, when I sort of mentioned this almost inauguration practice, you'll just get sent anywhere. That's where you have, at least in the Austrian tradition, basically no say of where you go. You can sort of you can sort of voice your preference, but there was actually this urban legend when I was doing my preparatory year that they said, don't say anything because they'll send you to the opposite, just just to, to mess with you. Um, so in the beginning, not really. In, in the Austrian service, there is, there's, at least on the trade and economic side, there's not a formal hierarchy, but as you mentioned, there's definitely an informal one. Like yes. New York, Paris, London, um, Beijing, definitely or Berlin uh, are probably of, 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 of greater, how do you say, clout, um, than, than other postings. But at the deputy level, what they basically try to do is to expose you to three very different experiences. So ideally, an emerging market, a hardship posting, and a highly developed industrialized nation. And I I had, I think in that sense, almost, almost um, a, a perfect trajectory because Cairo turned out to be a very volatile posting when I was there. I arrived in uh, September 2010, and in January 2011, that's when the um, the Arab Spring and the Egypt, Egyptian Revolution um, happened. And I, I was actually on, on Tahrir Square, the, the epicenter of the revolution, on the 25th of January 2011, when it happened. And that was an incredible experience. It was probably one of the most formative experiences um, of my life, where you could feel, you could just feel how suddenly the, the whole... Um, there was like an energy in the air that suddenly flipped and it went from a small student-led protest to like um, a a countrywide wildfire. It was incredible. And you could really feel like this this discontentment that was bottled up in in generations of of Egyptians that that had to suffer through a lot of hardship. It was just unleashed. And it was really incredible how no one saw this this coming, least of all Mubarak, because he could have easily... um, squashed this little student-led protest that it was um, initially. Um, Concerning um, entertaining sort of dignitaries and and delegations, I I can neither confirm nor deny this, but it definitely, yeah, that can happen in in, in certain locales. Um, I think for me, Cairo was was a great first posting. It was pretty intense. Um, After the Egyptian revolution, I also was one of the first 
um, Austrian diplomats to, to visit Juba, the capital of South Sudan, when it became its own independent country. I still what think it's the like? young. It was, again, it was, it was incredible in a sense that there was so much enthusiasm in the air, so much um, optimism. And unfortunately, I, I did sort of a first fact-finding mission to, to assess the economic potential and overall um, situation of the country. And while I was, I was there, it was, it was an atmosphere of, of, of joy and, and everyone was jubilant. But very quickly, it became apparent that there were, there were pretty significant issues and challenges that would be difficult to overcome, namely a sense of tribalism that still was existent in, in the society where there are like four different, um, I mean, 50 different ethnic groups, four dominant ones, um, Dinka, Lur, Nur, Murle, and you had ministers that, that were from different ethnic groups that were sort of soon became um, sucked into some infighting. And unfortunately, even though I, I, I was hoping that the country would do very well, um, it had only 8 million inhabitants. It was twice the size of Germany. It has the seventh or eighth largest oil reserves in, in, on the African continent, very fertile agricultural land. Um, most of the population, I think 50% was younger than 20, 20 years old. Um, all of the public debt was waived by the Paris Club. So it, it felt like everything was going in their favor, but there were insurmountable internal societal challenges. And that was, that was really tough to, tough to see because obviously you, you wanted this country to, to succeed and prosper. But already back then in 2011, I felt like this, this would probably not end very well. And unfortunately, it didn't. I think it descended into a, a form of civil war two, three years down the road. Um, so that was, um, yeah, that was, that was unfortunate, but again, a, an incredible an incredible experience. And um, it, it got me thinking also about how you can maybe improve foreign aid or make it more effective or maybe use the, the private sector as a more efficient agent for for, for, for positive social change and, and development. Okay. How about you tell us exactly how foreign aid works at the moment and how you think that your ideas would improve that? Well, I was, um, I was the, the, the commercial attaché primarily, but I was also the acting development attaché in, in Cairo because we didn't have our own sort of um, development office there. And I, I attended a lot of these meetings, mostly European Union Development Councilor coordination meetings. And I often felt that it was a little bit removed from the problem. You know, there were funds and, and money being thrown at a problem with perhaps um, not a lot of accountability, uh, not a lot of follow-up, not a lot of um, granular understanding of the issues. Occasionally, it would lead to actual perverse incentives where foreign aid might actually stifle a private sector solution in that in that in that space where you could argue is that actually is that helping or not or does it just create a dependency on um, foreign aid and I just felt that the whole thing was unfortunately very inefficient and often quite removed from the key beneficiaries like the key stakeholders that that should benefit from from receiving these funds. There's also I think more accounting forward approaches to foreign foreign aid where you you said you waive a portion of public debt that a country might own to you and then you call it foreign aid but is there really a trickle-down effect um i don't know and 
I'm not saying I, I necessarily found a perfect solution or a solution, but I, I felt if there were ways to, to treat foreign aid more as almost risk or venture capital and really um, invest very strategically in, in small or initially small startups and enterprises that, that, have, that have the capabilities of becoming economically self-sustaining over, over the short term, I felt like that might be a much more efficient way to 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 disperse and distribute um, official development assistance. Things um, such as like microloans, microloans perhaps, but also um, maybe just initial grants um, and sort of seed money that helps people pursue an entrepreneurial vision but where it's clear that this will not be a permanent lifeline, you know, where there has, it has to convert to some sort of economic self-sufficiency. Um, so I think there are, yeah, there, there are a lot of ways to, to look at this. Um, I think it is important that, the, that it, economic sustainability has to be sort of the underlying, underlying foundation at some point, maybe not in, in the very beginning, uh, but at some point, if it's not economically sustainable, it, you might, yeah, you might not tackle the problem in the right way. As our um, shared friend Valerie uh, said, um, from the Technotomous Manifesto, <laughs> yeah. uh, gro- economic growth is not a cure-all, but no economic growth is a cure-all. And I think there's a lot to be said about that. Um, you've obviously know your way around economics. The, the, the question that always grabs me, and you've seen a lot of countries at both ends of the spectrum, do you have a sort of a theory or a feeling as to why some countries are rich and some countries are poor? Because as you said, you've just outlined a country, South Sudan, which has all this fertile land, all this oil, all these young people, and they're ready to go. And it's one of the poorest countries in the world. And then the example I was using, because my, um, my wife's family is from there, is Singapore, where there is nothing in Singapore apart from a dock and a jungle. And you're surrounded by like potential enemies and you have a... You know, especially you know when it first started, when it was first started, you know, sixty, seven years ago, you know, half of Chinese, half Malay, bunch of Indian people. You know, it wasn't exactly the, uh, it wasn't exactly the twelve tribes of Israel, so to speak. You know, there was definitely a, um, a little bit of argy bargy there. And you, if you, I'm sure you've been to Singapore. Mm-hmm. It's like visiting the future, but like a utopian one. Like you know, you go to Changi Airport, everything works. It's spotless it's zero crime you know you can get a bowl of noodles at 3am in the morning you get your suit tailor you know like it's it's a wonderful place um into you know it's almost like a sim city so maybe you could talk a little bit about where you see countries going wrong where countries go right um yeah i mean that's baked into the pudding that that's i think that's really an a fascinating question that people have sort of been trying to solve for years what or not years, I should say centuries or generations, and then yeah, like what, what is the right way to sort of have uh, sustainable economic growth, prosperity? I think the, um, the key, so I, I should say that after Cairo, um, they asked me where do, where do I want to go next? I was able to go to Bangkok. And from Bangkok, again, I, I was covering a very large and diverse geographic um, area, uh, Thailand, Myanmar, Cambodia, Laos, and Vietnam, where I was able to also, how do you say, experience a lot of uh, countries in a lot of different states of economic uh, development, um, and then eventually went to, to New York as a deputy trade commissioner, sort of getting the, the U.S. perspective. So I think 
throughout that career, I was I was exposed to to many different um, uh, approaches to to sort of solving solving this this challenge. What I think is key is getting the ratio right of free market dynamics and sort of public um, public intervention to a certain degree. I don't think everything can be left uh, for free markets to to solve um, simply because I think there are um, there's, there are certain public goods that I don't think should be subject to, 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 to free market dynamics simply because they're invaluable and irreplaceable. And whether this is physical safety um, or maybe health to a certain degree, education to a certain degree, I do think that's where, um, where the state should play um, a regulatory role in sort of um, assuring that there is a baseline, that a baseline of human dignity that, that everyone is, is guaranteed. And then leaving everything beyond that, or most that is beyond that, um, up to a very well-functioning free market um, sort of uh, free market marketplace. And I think Singapore actually gets this quite right. If you look at public servants that are exceptionally well-paid, has the lowest one of the lowest corruption rates in the world, together with New Zealand, actually. Um, and I think they sort of are pretty close to perfecting this balance of. Of, of leveraging free market dynamics, but making sure that there is um, that the public goods are taken care of through a publicly mandated um, organization uh, and a strong civil servant um, civil servant culture. I agree. I mean, yeah. the, I think one of the forgotten heroes of the twentieth century was Chiang Kai, not Chiang Kai Shek, um, Lee Kuan Yew, the founder mm-hmm. of yeah. Singapore. Um, and just for a little everyone listening at home, you know, when they when they when Singapore, which used to be called the Straits Colony, got independence. They were, they were putting their constitution together and they said, well, what language should our constitution be in? You know, should it be in Chinese, um, which was like the majority um, population, or should it be in like Malay, which was, um, it used to be part of Malaysia? Um, or should it be both? Or should it be both? And uh, Lee Kuan Yew says, it's going to be neither. It's going <laughs> to be in English, because I can see the writing on the wall and English is going to be the language to learn. And they were all like, well, Lee, not all of us speak English. And he's like, well, we're all going to have to learn. Which is just such a a combination yeah, of such a, a crazy that was a pretty level of move. Oh, you know, exa- it's, it's a crazy level of insight and it's a crazy example of leadership to be like, guys, I, you know, because most people like doing what they did yesterday and most people... You know, most people only last like 15 days on Duolingo, um, you know, let alone the mandated version of learning English. Um, and it's, um, yeah, and but like, as you said now, you know, just by that combination of a place in Asia, which was a port, a hub of security and safety um, with strong institutions and English speaking has transformed a place which was essentially just a jungle in 70 years to, it's like Wally, you know, like it's, um, you know, it, it, it's, a, you know, I'm, I'm a fan. I think two, two European examples that are probably in a similar fashion, if you look at Switzerland and even Sweden to a certain degree, two, 200 years ago, those were among the poorest countries in Europe. And, and they, be, they transformed themselves into powerhouses of, of innovation and, and wealth, basically by having, I think, um, a very strong, uh, cohesive scientific uh, culture uh, and, and strong public 
public servant um, yeah, public servant uh, approach as well. Most of the, I think, two hundred years ago, a lot of Swiss people were mercenaries because there was there was a, a lack of natural resources in the country. There was uh, one of the yeah one of the poorest countries in Europe. Now it's obviously one of the one of the best practice examples of economic development. Yeah, and when I think of Switzerland, you know, it always amazes me how many shipping companies are based in a landlocked <laughs> yeah. country, you know. But I guess it, it's all very generative. Um, I'd love before we talk about your shift into the private sector. I think you know your experiences in Egypt. We're looking at this Israel and Hamas situation, and there's all this talk about Egypt, but most people don't know anything about Egypt from that's happened in the last three thousand years. Um, a bit more past that, but there's a big gap. Um, like, what role do you think Egypt has to, has to play in this conflict? Because it seems to me that they're trying to keep it. Um, yeah, I think play pretty quiet. I mean, I think traditionally um, Egypt played a huge role in 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 brokering uh, or trying to broker peace in the Middle East. If you look at also if you look at Jimmy Carter and Sadat. And I think they had perhaps a more prominent role um, in in the 70s, or like one or two generations um, ago. Um, I mean, the, the Middle East in general, I feel like is is one of the most complex um, socioeconomic environments in the world. There is this there's this uh, to quote Winston Churchill again. I think talking about Russia, he mentioned it's a it's a mystery inside a riddle wrapped up in an enigma. And I think the same applies to to the Middle East to, to a certain degree. The, the, the more you peel back a layer of the onion, the more you understand how little you understand about, um, about uh, all the different um, cultural influences. And it's, it's a very, it was always, I think, a very delicate balance. And I think Egypt um, was trying very hard to be, to be sort of the a diplomatic hub and spoke. Um, which it was in the 70s, maybe up into the 80s. I'm not sure they want to assume that role to the same degree going forward, where they perhaps want to be yeah, more, more focused on their own internal stability. Um, obviously, there's, I mean, yeah, there's, there's a border, um, border, I think, Ramallah into, into Gaza, which is, which is uh, yeah, managed, managed by the Egyptians, but the Egyptian president made it quite clear that they, they would not resettle, at least for the time being, any uh, any people from Gaza or Palestinians into into Egypt or the Sinai. I think there, and again, I'm, I'm not an expert at all anymore on this, but hmm. from 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 the outside and via secondhand uh, information, it seems like they want to make sure that the Sinai and and their own domestic situation remains safe and stable. Yeah, no, it seems to me that, you know, the why Egypt is trying to, you know, thread the needle in a sense is they want to feel, they want to sound supportive, but at the same time, having an extra 2 million people into your country overnight who, uh, you know, I, don't, I mean, I don't, know, I don't have a huge amount of knowledge on this, but you're, you're, you're essentially, you know that at least some of the people who are coming into your group are, all-in terrorists, um, and if not all-in terrorists, you've, you've got that concentric circle of, you know, terrorist sympathisers, terrorist supporters, or even just people who um, have, you know, spent the first thirty years of their life growing up in a 
terror-run society, um, how you ingratiate that into uh, a new Can community. you see the image? Okay. Yeah. Must be a um, – yeah, sorry, this – We've had, a, we've had a fair share of uh, technical difficulties. I'm sorry if you're still with us. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, it's, it seems like a delicate um, place to play. I, I do think I, I do think that the Camp, the Camp David Accords, uh, which was sort of brokered in Camp David between Anwar Sadat and, and Menachem Begin in, in September 1978, I do think that was like a milestone uh, endeavor and, and, and achievement. And Anwar Sadat eventually won the Nobel Prize for Peace. I think Menachem Begin as well. Uh, so, yeah, I, th I think this was a, a a great undertaking. I'm, I'm not sure something we will see something similar uh, coming out of uh, out of Egypt in the very near future. But let yeah, let's let's see. Interesting. So let's talk about your time then when you did go. You decided to make a pivot from the diplomatic service into the uh, into the private sector. Uh, I'm guessing via Stanford. Yeah. So I should I should preface that I I actually I wasn't hell bent on pivoting. I I was in a lucky situation that so after you spend three times three years as a deputy um, and then another usually year or two in Vienna, you can assume a trade commissionership at least in the Austrian system. So then you become trade commissioner somewhere, um, which is basically like being an economic ambassador. You have you have basically free reign more or less. You have your own little office or could be a larger office, but you have your own office, your own field of coverage, um, and you can, yeah, focus your attention and your resources where you think it makes the most sense. And I had a I had a really fantastic time in the in the core diplomatique. Um, but after ten years, I was very curious to do something else for a year, basically going on a sabbatical. And usually, they didn't, they weren't very happy about people asking for this because it just complicated things further. You have this thing called roulement where people cycle in and out. And if then people go on sabbaticals, it, it complicates things further. So I was very lucky that I was one of, I think, two in the last 10 years who were allowed to do this. So I was looking specifically at one year de graduate degree programs that I thought would be interesting, intellectually stimulating, um, and just a, a cool experience. So I looked at, I, I even looked at engineering degrees in the beginning that I thought maybe uh, an MBA that can be done in, in a year would, would be fun. I looked at INSEAD, the MIT Sloan Fellow MBA. And then I came across a program at Stanford at the GSB, the, the Graduate School of Business, um, called MSX or Sloan, uh, Sloan uh, Fellowship, which is a one-year um, uh, master's, master's, master's of Science uh, degree, which is basically like a compressed or accelerated MBA program, so four quarters instead of six. Um, and I applied for this. Luckily, luckily I got accepted. And... It was a, it was a, it was a great experience. A lot of uh, entrepreneurial, interesting um, people with with high hopes and dreams. I definitely think that Stanford sort of was a more um, stimulating, innovative environment than, than perhaps MIT for me. I also went to the admit weekend there, and um, I, it soon became clear that this, I think, would be the most interesting um, experience. And my, my plan back then was doing this for a year and then going back uh, and eventually become trade commissioner somewhere. But at the end, as I sort of graduated into the pandemic, I should say, um, I received a job offer from, from Tesla. And it was precisely at that sort of intersection of government relations and business development that I had always been focusing on, but from a public sector perspective, you could say. And the opportunity to do this for 
what I thought and still think is the most impactful company uh, in my generation, perhaps, no matter if you think about impact from an economic or uh, sustainability perspective, I thought I thought that was too good of a too good of an opportunity to 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 not take. Um, so I eventually I yeah I, I left I left my, my my previous career and and joined Tesla. Uh, eventually onboarded in January 2021. So going on three years now. Let's um well I won't talk much about Tesla, but I'd like to learn more about electric vehicles. Because it's one of those things where so many people could treat it as there's some very loud voices in the room. Some people think it's the panacea that, oh, once we've all got EVs, then we don't have to worry. All the polar bears are going to be fine. Life's going to be great. And then there's all the other people who are saying it's, um, it's a conspiracy. It's big government trying to control you. Um, it's impossible because of the grid. Um, and it's not going to be happening because we don't have enough lithium in the Congo to make this, or was it cobalt in the Congo? Cobalt. Um, it seems like both of those arguments are probably going to be wrong, but what are those, what's like the straw man and the steel man for the EV revolution? Um, I think the EV of the evolution, if you will, is almost, uh, is, uh, is almost a done deal at this point. If you look at the if you look at the energy efficiency of an electric drivetrain versus an internal combustion engine vehicle, it is it's like a no brainer that this technology will one hundred percent prevail. I think in the very near future, and I think the one camp that thinks that this is sort of a, a bit of a conspiracy or a top down mandate, I think they're a little bit oblivious perhaps to the to the to the physical realities that no matter how efficient you, you try to make an internal combustion engine, you will eventually, so, so the, the, it's currently at like 30 to 35%. Um, and I think it's pretty much at, at the end of its, um, of its innovation sort of curve. An electric drivetrain easily has 90 to 95% um, energy efficiency. So it's almost physically impossible to match that. But I, I agree that there are, um, still challenges within that ecosystem, like um, maybe a battery technology is probably the, the key bottleneck here, um, where the, the price per kilowatt hour still needs to trend down further to make electric vehicles fully price um, competitive uh, and, and to reach price parity with internal combustion engine vehicles. But I'm convinced, and again, I'm not speaking on behalf of Tesla here. This is just my, my personal conjecture, my personal opinion. I, I'm convinced that within this decade, this will happen for sure. And then at the second half of this decade, in most highly developed countries, we will see more than 50% uh, EV sales as, as share of, of passenger vehicle sales. Probably in some countries, even 70 to 80%. Um, and we, are, we already can see how this is happening in, in Norway where they reached, I think, 75 to 80 percent of new vehicles being being electric. Um, so, yeah, uh, the, the, the truth is somewhere the truth is somewhere in, in the middle, I would say. I think it's inevitable at this point, um, but it needs perhaps a, a clever regulatory political approach to make this transition seamless uh, and not too disruptive for everyone. Yeah, no, I think more. More and more people, you know, whether it's the UK and rural, whether it's climate change, whether it's EVs, has been thinking more and more about energy. 
Um, and it feels, I was reading an article in The Economist about, um, you know, Australia's energy transition. And there's, they're at this point where the governments are now paying coal power to stay open when they would ideally want to be closed. While at the same time, there is just something like a third of Australians have solar panels now on their, uh, on their roofs. Um, so, you know, it's like at some, in some ways, like for example, in Perth, something like 50% of people in Perth because it's sunny all the time. Um, it's like yeah. a phoenix. Have, like everyone in Perth now has a solar panel. Even people that don't even believe in climate change have a solar panel because they're like, oh, it's free energy. Um, but at the same time, you know, you're solving that problem. You're trying to solve that problem. What do you do when the sun doesn't shine, which is nighttime, you know, let alone cloudy yeah. days? Um, and how and how important energy is as a um, you know the key input of like civilized life. It's a um, it doesn't seem you know maybe we can do a, the myth busting section. What happens when everyone drives home with their Tesla and plugs it into their home at six pm at the same time? Um, how do we solve that? Is that a pro- is that a solvable problem? I, I think I, I think it is a very solvable problem because. Even if we assume that, let's say, 80% of all passenger vehicles, if, if 80% were to become electric, which will not happen overnight, because the, the electrification of the fleet will take, obviously, 20 years or so or more, or perhaps 25, it, it should only lead to a total increase of 10 to, uh, 10 to 15% uh, in, of electricity consumption. So you could argue, okay, that's pretty significant. But um, there's, there's 1.4 billion passenger vehicles in the world today, and there's only, sorry, vehicles. So that includes uh, commercial, light commercial vehicles, um, and roughly 80 million sold per year. So even if we assume that every single vehicle from this day forward were to be electric, it will still take 20 years. So the whole, the whole electrification of the global fleet will, by, by necessity, take a generation. And I do think we have sufficient experience when it comes to um, energy infrastructure, if we, if we acknowledge this fact that the consumer trends are changing, I do think that we should be able to, to absorb this. But I also agree that we need to probably invest in, in this energy infrastructure now um, to make sure that we're not um, in a situation where energy use has to be curtailed or energy becomes so expensive that it would have been cheaper to, um, to use ice engines longer uh, and then economically disincentivize essentially um, EV adoption. The other point you mentioned um, with renewable energy and particularly solar, I, I fully agree that there was a missing link in the sense that what do you do if there's no um, energy availability from the sun or from the wind? And that's where batteries are a key component. Battery energy storage, and Australia actually has some some some, some of the largest battery energy storage projects in the in the world um, this is I think what will help um, renewable energies to really become ideally dominant over the next 20 years um, to have to be to have the the possibility to store energy temporarily and to use it when you when when you need to um, yeah this this is going to to also increase the efficiency of the grid, you, you will need less uh, peak power plants to sort of um, offset um, perhaps unexpected peaks. Um, 
maybe at some point we will have vehicle to grid technology where vehicles, EVs, can use some of their internal um, battery storage capacity to, to offset imbalances in the grid. So I still think we're pretty early on in, if you think about innovation as sort of as an S-curve perhaps, I still, I still think we're, we're early on and battery technologies and, and, and chemistries will continue to, to be better and cheaper, higher energy density, lower cost. Um, and battery energy storage is a direct beneficiary of electric vehicle adoption because there is a second life for EV batteries that can be used in battery energy storage because the, the, the demands are much lower in, in simple storage. Okay. And how, could you briefly explain what that looks means? Well, that's sort of at the end of life of an, a battery that is used in an EV at, at the end of its life, you can, you can use it in, in, in battery energy storage systems, or you can also recycle it with a very high degree of recyclability. So I think at, at the moment, we're already at like 95, 96% um, of material that can be recycled. Redwood materials that was actually founded by, by a Tesla co-founder, um, JB Straubel, they are, they claim that they can reach, I think, 98%, maybe even 99% in, in, in the medium term. Uh, and this is the, the big and defining difference uh, between lithium and other um, hydrocarbon resources that you can almost, you can recycle them almost endlessly. They don't just disappear into the atmosphere. Um, and this is what I think will make the resource efficiency overall uh, much, much higher. Um, but I do agree we are in a transition period now, probably over the next 10, 15, 20 years, um, where things might not be perfect yet. No, I, I think what you said about the, right at the start about how the the, evolu the evolution is baked into the cake is when I saw a guy get out of his car in Denver, big hat, you know, almost <laughs> like the, he looked like a cowboy, the champ. Cowboy, the cowboy boots and the electric vehicle. And the electric vehicle. I was like, it's over, you know. Like, yeah, um, yeah. economy is downstream from culture, so it's it's already it's already happening. It seems. Oh, totally. I remember when I went to Coachella, and everyone, when people were like, we need to build the wall, and I went and saw like Bad Bunny on stage, and every single person, I was the only person there that didn't know every single word in Spanish. I was like, it's <laughs> it's too late, you know. Like Hispanic, yeah. like Mexican culture, Hispanic culture is now such a big part of Southern United States. Um, whether in Texas or California, it's, yeah, um, that horse is bolted. Should we go to the rapid round? Yeah, let's do it. What do people misunderstand about you most? Um, okay, that's not very rapid, my answer. But obviously my Austrian accent, so people have a hard time understanding me. But joking aside, uh, I think people sometimes misunderstand me me thinking hard about a problem with perhaps arrogance or so. I heard that in the past. I don't know if that's true. You would probably be better able to, to judge that. Yeah. Um, how would your parents describe you? Um, fun, engaging, open-minded. Nice. Um, what is the best compliment you've ever received? Hmm. 
Hmm. I mean, one one of the best uh, one of the best compliments, more for sentimental value, was from my father pretty shortly before he passed away, um, when he basically told me that he that he appreciated that I was how do you say um, a, a great contribution in uh, in his life that was I think the best compliment that sounds very yeah I can imagine it's hard to be there that's that's very that's very touching um, what's the worst piece of advice you've ever received play it safe and to provide some context, uh, in Austria is very traditional and, and conservative at times. And I feel like it, it was not perhaps a single piece of advice, but it was almost a sort of contextual advice that you should um, yeah, play it safe, don't stick your head out, don't risk too much. And I've, I've completely come around on, on this and think that uh, disproportionate upside is, is much more valuable than, than, than only focusing on safety. Do you want Austria and Hungary to get back together? Um, I think I think we're we're good enough neighbors as it is. So I'll suppress my imperialistic tendencies. Every time you see an eagle, you just get a little bit excited. Talk about eagle. If it's an eagle with two heads, then then that would be a, yeah, would be a sign, perhaps. What's what, what's the best thing that America does? I think innovation and inventing the future. Yeah. Are you excited about AI? Yes, very much. If, if employed in the right fashion. Yeah. What's an underrated tool or system that you use that makes your life a lot better? Cold showers, cold plunges. Uh, I can, I can warmly recommend it. I imagine in, uh, especially in Texas, I imagine they, uh, <laughs> yeah. they come in handy. Um, and the final question, which I ask everyone, everyone on the U, in part of UATX um, is a high performer. Um, being a high performer means doing things that often you don't want to do. What do you, how do you do things that you don't always want to do to achieve the results you want? Hmm. Yeah, that, that's a, that's a great question. One, one of the, one of the lawyers that we worked with when I was deputy trade commissioner in New York, he had this silly joke about how do you eat an elephant? And his answer was, well, you have to start somewhere. And I think there's actually a lot of truth to that, that um, a lot of sort of seemingly insurmountable problems and challenges become a lot more manageable if you start with a very small step and then let it take its course. So yeah, a small step and and having a plan is how you tackle big things. Stefan, it's been fantastic. Thank you very much likewise. for being on the show. Thank you so much, Harry. And I hope we catch up in person soon. Oh, likewise. Take care. Take care, man.